Hello, Kindred Spirits. It's Amy, and I wanted to jump on and do a podcast on the word molasses. Now, if you've never heard of molasses or had molasses, dark amber, honey-like substance with a sort of a smoky taste. I don't know if I'm describing that in the best way, but it's something that's pretty common around here. People eat it on cornbread. They will use it pretty much the same way that you use honey. You can make cake with it. You can cook with it just like you cook with honey, but it's made from cane and it's often harvested in the fall months in Appalachia. You'll still find people around here who make molasses and my family made molasses for years when I was a kid. And so I got to participate in that process and I wrote about it and I wanted to tell you about it and also about how it's pronounced among older generations. Older generations will call it a lassie. So they'll drop the ESS and add an EY, which is really interesting. But I, I just wanted to share with you about molasses and about my memories of our family making it. Held to the sunlight, a jar of molasses looks like smoky quartz. Sometimes it resembles a dark amber if the batch was taken up from the fire a little sooner. When word travels through a southern community that a family's molasses is especially good, it's as valuable as currency. Rural folks call the process of making molasses a stir-off. The word molasses becomes lasses or molassi in the local dialect, a vernacular blend resulting from English, German, and Scotch-Irish migrants who flooded the Appalachian Mountains in the 18th and 19th centuries. Kentucky writer Jesse Stewart was among the first to put molassi to print in his 1938 memoir, Beyond Dark Hills. Whether they're talking about several jars or just a teaspoonful, molasses is referenced by Central Appalachians in the plural, a Southern grammar pattern recorded as early as 1895, according to the Dictionary of American Regional English. These molasses, we say, are real good with cathead biscuits. For several years in the late 1970s and early 1980s, my family made molasses every October on my great-grandmother's property in southwestern Virginia. They boiled cane syrup in a long-battered aluminum pan hoisted on chains over a furnace. Men with nicknames like Poppy, Peanut, Crow, and Peewee smoked as they sat around the boiling pan on seats taken from an abandoned school bus and listened to the Friday night football games on a transistor radio. They waited between commercials for the local funeral home and feed store to hear if the junkyard bulldogs of Johnsville High School would rest another win, especially from their longtime enemies, the Pennington Gap Bobcats. But before all that, there was sugarcane to be harvested, hauled up from the fields that once held acres and acres of tobacco before anyone cared about what smoking did to them. The long, thick stalks were piled on a trailer hitched to an old Ford tractor that sputtered up a steep hill with a parade of children following past our great-grandparents' house, past the chicken house where I once met the biggest black snake I'd ever seen, past the goat pen where they'd stare at us as they chewed, up to my great-uncle's barn in the shelter where we'd watch it boil. The cane stalks were stripped of their long leaves. A drive line from the tractor and gear train from an old horse-drawn mowing machine turned mill. The kids could feed the cane through the mill's grinder to render the green juice into buckets, which grown-ups would pour in the pan. They'd stoke a fire underneath, and then they'd wait. It took all day for one molasses run. The waiting was good because it didn't feel like waiting. There was plenty of talk with all the people, some family, some neighbors, parking their cars at the bottom of the hill to walk up and sit a while on the school bus bench near the boiling pan and catch up. 
There were cigarettes between calloused, hard-working fingers on hands as tough as baseball gloves. These were hands that mined coal, grated tobacco, put up hay, hewed logs, and cut the right-of-way. There were plenty of spaces for children to play hide-and-seek or chase, behind a row of gnarled apple trees or near the old smokehouse. There were goats and kids to pet and feed, and the joking and laughter and crackling sounds of football not too far away. Then, the October dark would fall hard and fast, a heavy curtain of chilled air that could hide a boogeyman and send us back to the pan, to the red tips of cigarettes winking in the shadows of that shed, to the roaring fire the grown-ups shielded us from with one long arm when we got too close. We waited impatiently for a thick green foam to pull together on the bubbling surface and fought over who got to hold the broom handles with pipe hands nailed to the top. Everyone wanted to be a skimmer, which meant dipping the tip of the pie pan just under the surface of the green foam and then dumping the foam into buckets. It was an important job. The cooking often outlasted the company and our bedtimes. Pulling up the pan and canning the molasses, which was already sold out before the stalks were cut, could take well into the darkest part of the evening. In the chilliest, foggiest part of morning, they'd start all over until the last cane stalk had been crushed. For my brother and me, Climbing the steps to a school bus in October was pure agony, knowing that people we loved were gathering in and around that shed all day long. These autumn nights, when I left my great-grandparents' house and went straight to bed, I'd carry the musky scent of boiling sorghum and cigarette smoke in my hair. That blended aroma would be in every breath I took all day long as I counted the minutes until I boarded the bus again. On the best days, we were allowed to ride it all the way to their house where it coughed us up at the bottom of that dirt driveway. We raced all the way to the top, the goats still chewing and still staring to the smoke that boiled around the eaves of the shed. Inside the barn, just yards away, jars of molasses, dark and shiny under fluorescent lights, were lined up for labels and placed into boxes. Sometimes they were delivered to local grocery stores in town. Other times people came by with a hope prayer and a fistful of money to trade for what can turn a plain biscuit into a work of art. The best way to sample is to dip a stalk of sugarcane into that thick brown syrup and roll it like caramel. Wait for it to cool and then lick it like an ice cream cone. It might be an acquired taste if you're not from the mountains, a sugary blend of wood smoke, autumn, and hard work that goes well with the tinny sounds of bluegrass on the AM station. Our family stopped making molasses sometime around the late 1980s. Aging farmers needed to conserve their fields and energy for tobacco until the state of Virginia started paying more not to grow it. The older I get, the more I dwell in nostalgia, especially when I consider that my children will not see molasses made, not under the shed with the school bus benches and a transistor radio tucked into a wood crevice, a piece of aluminum foil wrapped around the antenna. They won't hear the conversation, the laughter. So many of those men and women are sleeping in the cemetery just over the hill. They won't get to fight over the pie pan skimmers and know the satisfaction of lifting green foam into a bucket or that sweet taste of cane syrup wrapped around a piece of the stalk. They might see molasses made at one of our many harvest festivals that take place around the Appalachian region or Dollywood, but I bet they won't hear it called molassy there. I hope you might join me on September 20th at the Virginia Tech Southwest Center in Abingdon, Virginia for the Women Impact Virginia Embracing Your Voice event. You can go on the Talking Appalachian social pages, Instagram or Facebook to find a registration link. I hope to see you there where we'll be talking Appalachian.
If you like the content I'm putting into the world about the culture of Appalachia and you want to support the podcast, there are links in my show notes where you can do just that. Whether it's a cup of coffee during these long hours of editing or a monthly contribution for which I'm happy to include your name or organization as a supporter on our show notes and give you early access to episodes. Or maybe you can just share the episodes you love the most and spread the word about us, which is free. I appreciate you and any support you have to spare.